Please take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy. I'm going to take a two-month break from Luke and come back to that in September. But we're going to study the short letter of 2 Timothy. If you're new to the Bible, this is toward the back of the Bible. You could go toward Revelation and then start flipping back uh, toward the beginning, just page by page, and you'll quickly come to 2 Timothy right after 1 Timothy, in case you were wondering. So uh, this letter represents Paul's last written words, as far as we know from history. He is writing this from a nasty Roman prison, and he is writing to urge his young, younger uh, protege in the gospel named Timothy to keep the, the gospel going and to keep going in the gospel himself, keep moving forward in his own uh, understanding of the gospel and love for the truth. So I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 1 today, and we'll study this entire chapter. I'll read aloud, but you're welcome to follow along in a printed copy of the Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This weekend, we're celebrating our nation's independence, our nation's birthday, sometimes we say, but not all was well and good after the events that happened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776. Even just a few months later, 
many uh, of the continental army, of those fighting for the revolution, began to defect, began to turn away from the cause that they had once deemed to be worth even giving their life for if need be, but now after months and even in some cases years of effort and exhaustion and danger and dirtiness and sickness, they began defecting in droves. And so every day the generals and the commanders would look around and see men leaving their things behind, sometimes taking even a cannonball with them as a souvenir and walking back home. The same thing happened in the Civil War. In 1863 and 1862, there was the Battle of Fredericksburg, and shortly after that, in January of 1863, um, the uh, Union soldiers often began defecting as well because they'd had such a miserable fight in Fredericksburg, and the weather was terrible, and they were constantly in danger. They're in miserable conditions, and so up to 100 soldiers a day were leaving and just marching back to Connecticut or New Hampshire or wherever they had come from and said, enough with this. I don't want to put myself in this situation any longer. They were no longer convinced that this cause was worth the effort, was worth the toil. Perhaps one way we could say what they were experiencing was they were ashamed of the cause at least to the point that they were willing to give up on it at that point. When it comes to the gospel message, we have two choices. We can be ashamed of it. We can be embarrassed of it. And three different times in this passage, we see that that phrase. We see it in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord in verse 8. In verse 12, we saw uh, that Paul said, I am not ashamed. And in verse 16, he said, May the Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus, for he was not ashamed. So you have these two choices. You can either be ashamed of the gospel on the one hand, or you can guard it, and you can suffer for it, come what may. And what I would say is, let people consider us to be fools. Let people say we need to mind our own business. Take our jobs, take our homes, take our business Take our freedom, take our life. But no one can take the truth of the gospel or the historical realities behind it. So for you, Christian, this passage, as it ministered to Timothy in the first century, it ministers to us today, calling you to stand firm in the gospel. And to do that, to stand firm in the gospel, rather than to be ashamed of this message, you must know, first of all, where your faith came from. In verses 1 through 7, rather than being ashamed of the gospel, you must know where your faith came from to stand firm in the gospel. And Paul gives us three truths here in these first seven verses. The first is that the gospel came as a work of God. Even the fact that Paul was an apostle, he says in verse 1, was because of the work of God. He's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. This was what God chose for his life. And yet he has a will for your life as well. And sometimes we as Christians wring our hands because we're not sure what the next right step for us should be, where I should go to school, or where, whether I should take this job or that job or marry that person or that person. But typically, when the Bible talks about God's will for our lives, it says things like, you need to walk with God. You need to obey God. You need to repent of your sins. That's God's will for you today. And when you do those tasks, when you follow in God's ways, all those other details begin to take care of themselves because you realize uh, that, that God has 
good plans for you and that he loves you. And so here Paul is saying that he's an apostle by the will of God, that this was God's plan for his life. Verse 2, he mentions that these three gifts that God gives, grace, mercy, and peace, and those come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this faith comes as a work of God. Same is true in verse 6. Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. And you might ask, what in the world is that gift? And scholars can debate over different options, but it sure seems to make a lot of sense that it's talking about Paul's call to ministry and his, his gift of teaching the gospel itself. In 1 Timothy 4, just the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy perhaps a year or two before this one, he writes in verse 14, I should say, chapter 4, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And here in verse, five, verse 6, he says, Fan this gift into flame, which is in you through the laying on of my hands and by, that, by the hands of the other elders who are at that, there at that time as well. So to fan into flame, perhaps you've gone camping and you've tried to light a fire and you've had to get down really close to the fire and blow on it and take a piece of paper and wave it and do anything you can to get that flame to get bigger. And that's what he's talking about here. And perhaps Timothy would do that by calling to mind what God has done in his past and the the kind of spiritual heritage that he has received from his family, the kinds of people who have invested in him. And all of these thoughts would then be a way of him fanning into flame his desire to continue to serve God, let come what may. The gospel came as a work of God. Secondly, the gospel came... Through a spiritual, uh, through a godly lineage. The gospel came through a godly lineage. And so Paul talks about the fact that even he had ancestors who served God faithfully, and that Paul, uh, that Timothy, I should say, did as well. In verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your faith, and I am aware of the fact that your faith came from your mother, and her faith came from her mother. So he's taking. Timothy's spiritual family tree and tying it to his own literal family tree and saying, praise God for the fact that you received the gospel. And he, Timothy should be overwhelmed with gratitude when he considers this because uh, the, the book of Acts chapter 16 tells us that Timothy's mother was a faithful follower of God, but that his father was not. And so what this reminds us is that just the fact that you have a Christian parent or even two Christian parents, there's no guarantee that you're going to be a Christian yourself. And so when someone turns in faith to Christ, when that person is converted, made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit, that is a work of God and it is something to praise the Lord for. And even Paul says that I serve the Lord with a clear conscience. And I want to take a moment to dwell on that possibility or on that, that truth because it's a possibility that you are a Christian and that you would say, I have a clear conscience in every part of my life, but that you shouldn't have a clear conscience in every part of your life. Jiminy Cricket isn't right that you should always let your conscience be your guide. That's just not truth. Your conscience can be wrong, which is why your conscience needs to be educated. And you do that through truth in the Bible and truth outside of the Bible in certain cases as well. And if you're looking to study that topic of your conscience, I would highly encourage you to take for free if you're a gift or pay five, uh, if you're a visitor or pay $5 for if you're not a visitor and uh, get the book off the table called Conscience, what it is, how to train it, and how to differ 
or how, to, how to Love Those Who Differ. I can't remember the exact uh, last part of the subtitle, but a book by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, a wonderful gift to the church on this subject of the gift that God has given us called our conscience. Because like I said, sometimes your conscience can tell you everything's A-OK when it shouldn't be telling you that. But other times your conscience can be condemning you over things that it shouldn't be condemning you about at all. You should have freedom in your heart, not guilt every time you think about a certain issue or, or, uh, or do a certain activity. And so our conscience needs to be educated by the Word of God. And I would highly encourage you to read that book. But Paul says, I do have a clear conscience. And therefore, uh, I, I continue to serve God in, in this way. And perhaps what he's saying there is people have thrown me in jail saying that I've been wrong in some way. Maybe I just need to shut my mouth about this Jesus person and all that he has done and and said. And Paul says, no, 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 I have a clear conscience about this because I know I'm persuaded that this is gospel truth. The gospel came through a godly lineage and I just want to encourage you as you think through your own family tree, whether that be just your, your literal family tree or the, the, the people who have invested in you spiritually and made you the Christian that you are today, if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to give thanks for those Christian parents that God has given you and for those others who have invested heavily in your life as well. And perhaps you would say, well, how am I supposed to pass on this, this Christian lineage? And I would encourage you that as you raise children to do so with an eye toward how you raise them in the gospel. And if you have grandchildren, Invest in them and get, get spiritual resources in your home so that every time they're in your home, you can read good gospel truth to them and expose them to the truth of the gospel. And perhaps you don't have children yourself, but you can invest in other people's children. Maybe you can do that by serving in our children's ministry if you're a member. Maybe you can do that by uh, serving at the, the soccer camp in the, uh, about a week and a couple days. But these are ways that we can pass on the truth of the gospel to children. Timothy's giving thanks uh, because of Paul's ministry in his life and his, the, the ministry of Lois and Eunice as well. So your faith came from a work of God, came through a godly lineage, and it came through a spiritual investment. In verse 2, you see that Paul calls Timothy my beloved child. They're not related to each other. He's simply referring to the fact that they uh, have a common bond because of Paul's deep investment in Timothy's life. And verse 6 as well says that Paul laid his hands on Timothy, essentially ordaining him for ministry, giving him spiritual investment over and over and over again. And so I want to encourage you to give thanks for those who invested in your life. I give thanks for people in my life named Sean Albert, who was my pastor when I was in high school and college. For Gary Reimers, who was my pastor when I was in seminary. For Randy Yeagley, who was my Hebrew teacher, but who continues to invest in me even today, a decade later after I took that wretched class. Uh, his wife made a quilt for me and my wife, and it came yesterday. That's the kind of relationship that I have with my Hebrew teacher. But why is that? Because he saw in me some some kind of spiritual potential, and I saw in him a man who loved me a few years after my dad died and who was willing to invest in me. And I praise God for people like that. So the gospel came through a spiritual investment. I encourage you to give thanks for those who have deeply invested in your understanding of God and of the truth of the Word of God. So we need to know where your faith came from if you're going to stand firm in the gospel and know that this isn't just something that somebody made up and gave to you. That's one of the reasons we affirm historical creeds together. We affirm together the Apostles' Creed, which probably goes back 17 or 1800 years or even longer. 
And we do that to say, we're not the first ones around the block on the gospel. That's why our logo has a little cross in the middle, and it looks like a a window, kind of alluding to these windows over here, but just to the fact that, that the gospel is not new to us. We're taking what has been handed down to us and handed it on to the next generation. And so when this church started 60 years ago, 61 years ago in a couple months, maybe there were Christians in that congregation who thought, what if the gospel dies here? Which is a legitimate question and one we should be concerned about. Because you're always just one or two generations away from total heresy. And so maybe they were thinking, we've got to plant a church here in countryside so that 60 years from now, the gospel will be going strong. Well, you are proof of the fact that it is continuing to go on. And our prayer should be that 60 years from now is continuing to go on here, whether it's in this very building, on this very block, or at least in this very town. And one of the ways that we get to that point where 60 years from now, when most of us are dead and gone, is by continuing to faithfully pass on the gospel to the next generation, one person at a time, one day at a time. So know where your faith came from so you won't be ashamed of the gospel. Secondly, to stand firm in the gospel, you must know what this message is, what the gospel actually is. And the reason this is so important and we're going to take several minutes to dwell on this is because many people who call themselves Christians have no idea how to define the gospel. Maybe when you leave here today, you can, maybe if you're riding with somebody, you can say, why don't we practice on each other and try and share the gospel with each other in 60 seconds or less. And then you can try and do it in 30 seconds or less. And then you can do it in 10 seconds or less. Practice on each other throughout the week and share it with people that you get to know in the community. Share it with those who live near you because we need to know what this message is and many Christians struggle with this. And perhaps you're, you're not a Christian and you're here wondering what is this gospel thing that you keep talking about. I've probably used that word a dozen times already in the last 10 or 15 minutes. The gospel is the good news that God reconciles us to himself through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the simple gospel. And when we put our faith in Christ and we look to Him alone and we turn away from our own sins, we are then the children of God. And we are made alive by the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts. And this gives us hope for now. It gives us assurance that our past is dealt with because every one of us here has a nasty past. Whether you want to admit it or not, no one's going to come up here and stand up here and voluntarily share the worst things you've ever done or even the worst things you did this last week. No one wants to mess with that. So you know you have shame in your past, and the gospel deals with that. It also deals with the hardest things you're going through right now because it gives you hope for the future as well because we know that Jesus is coming back and that he is the one who will return in glory and in judgment. And we will live, those who have put their faith in him, will live with him forever in a world where there is no more curse, where there is no more sin, where there is no more child abuse or sexual abuse or divorce or messiness. All that's gone, but what remains is beauty, dignity, and holiness. That's the gospel in about 70 seconds, something like that. But what, you need to know what the message is. And Paul tells us here in, in verse 10 that it's based on a historical reality, really beginning in verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So there we're talking about history, that there was a point in time where God's grace was planned, and then a point in time where it was manifested in verse 10. 
And it was manifested through the appearing of our Savior. What is that talking about? It's talking about a little town called Bethlehem. And the fact that Jesus was born as a baby to take on flesh, to become human like us. To become a person who would deal with all of the garbage that we're dealing with, yet without sin in his life. And that he would be raised, that he, that he would be raised in a Christian home, in, our, in a God-fearing home, really. He would learn the gospel by reading the Old Testament that was passed down to him. And he would read it and realize, I'm this person that Isaiah 53 is talking about. I'm this person that Numbers 21, the serpent on the pole, is talking about. I'm this person in Genesis 3 who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And he realized that. And then because of his, what was considered blasphemous teaching, he was crucified on a cross. But in doing so, in his own death, verse 10 says that he abolished death. He put death itself to death. And in his place, he brought life and immortality, or in other words, eternal life, the fact that we will never die. The fact that it has been manifested through his appearing, what is that talking about? Maybe you're familiar with the fact that in World War II, one of the most beautiful buildings in the world, at least to my understanding, is the King's College Chapel in Cambridge, England. But in preparation for the fact that uh, those in, in England were expecting Hitler to bomb some of these historical buildings as a way of just demolishing their hope, they took the stained glass, which is enormous. I have to think it's very close. Some of the, the panels are as close from the floor up to parts of our ceiling in here. They took some of those panels out and they buried them in the ground. In other places, they put them in barns. They did this so that if the building itself would be bombed, the glass would be spared. Well, after the war was over, uh, workers took those glass panels and reinstalled them in this chapel but they did so with black curtains on the outside of the building so no one could see them and to protect the, the glass from dust and other debris. And then one night, it was dark at night, and there was the great revealing ceremony. And so all the students at Cambridge gathered outside and workers inside the building installed bright floodlights shining toward the windows from the inside. And then on the outside, people pulled those black curtains down and they could see the magnificent beauty of those stained glass windows which have been there for 500 years and they're still standing there today. And you should Google it and look at them after we're done, please. And you should look at those and mag just marvel at the beauty of them. But imagine how glorious that would have been to see the light shining through them for the first time in several years and to say, wow, we were able to preserve these. Praise God. And... That light shining through those windows is what this passage is describing when it says that Christ has manifested the glory of God. That Christ has made known God's saving purpose and grace. This passage tells us that the message is based on historical reality, that it is itself a work of grace. In verse 9, God saved us not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. The fact that God intervened in your life. This means that you don't earn God's favor. This means that you can do nothing to make God love you less. That should be really encouraging to you. That means you can do nothing to make God love you more. That should also be really encouraging to you. His love for you is perfect because it is a work of grace. The gospel is a work of grace. And this gospel has implications for all of life. Notice in verse 9 as well, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Do you know what that means? 
that he didn't just save you so that you could know that when I die, I will go to heaven. He saved you so you could live a certain kind of life. And that certain kind of life is called holiness. And it means you hate sin. And it means you repudiate it in your own life. And you fight it and you go to war with it. And it means that you stand for holiness and that you don't tolerate unholiness in your own life and in your own home and in your own church. This is why we take church membership so seriously. This is why we practice something called church discipline because it's possible to throw a blemish on the message of the gospel, on the truth of God's holiness by the way that we live or the way that other people who call themselves Christians live. And so we urge you then to take this super seriously The gospel has implications for all of life. And it's not just for now. It's pointing toward the future. And you'll notice there are several times in this passage where Paul kind of cryptically alludes to a certain day. Look in verse 12. Toward the end of verse 12, he says, I'm convinced that God is able to guard until that day. He's referring to the day when Christ will return in glory and judgment. And he does the same thing in verse 18. May the Lord grant on Onesiphorus, to find mercy from the Lord on that day, on the day when Christ returns in glory and judgment. The gospel has implications for all of life. And so Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of the sound words. What does that mean? It's kind of like uh, last winter when we got a ton of snow. Not this most recent one, but the one before. We don't shovel this back parking lot because we don't use it very often. We don't plow this back parking lot. So there was a point where there was about three feet of snow uh, in that back parking lot. And our dentist office is on the other side of that parking lot. So one day I was wearing my snow pants and my snow boots and all that. And I'm trudging through snow that's probably up to about this part of the pulpit here. And just trying to like step into this snow without completely dying was a real work of grace itself. And I have significant asthma in, in and thankfully, it's more under control now than it ever has been. But I was huffing and puffing about halfway through that parking lot. I'm turning around, and the church is way back there. The dentist's office is still way over there, and the snow is still really deep. And I had to keep going. Well, what if, this is the point of, the, of this story, what if one of my kids was behind me? What would I tell them to do? Yeah, carve your own path, kiddo. You know, make it difficult for yourself. No, I would say, follow the pattern that I've set for you. Hop from one of my boot footprints and hop to the next one and follow that pattern all the way across this parking lot because that way you will be able to make it to the other side. Paul is saying follow the pattern of the sound words which is the gospel content, the gospel message. And he says in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, which refers back to Acts 2, the passage we looked at last week, Guard the good deposit. What's the good deposit? It's the sound words. He's talking about the same thing in several different ways. Guard the good deposit. It's like someone has given you a treasure to take from one side of the world to another, and your job is to get it there safely by hook or by crook. I don't care what you have to do. Don't let this break. Don't lose this. Back in 1960, uh, a group of Israeli spies went to Argentina to track down one of the World War II's greatest war criminals. His name was Adolf Eichmann. And I highly encourage you to read this story because it 
magnificently paints the providence of God and the justice of God. But one of the most amazing parts was that they found where he was in the first place. But then they also had to capture him. And so they were looking all over the world for this guy. They get a tip that he's in Argentina through the providence of God. This group of spies moves to Argentina and tries to, to track him down. They track him down. Well, now they've got to capture him. They design this elaborate plan. They capture him in the middle of the night while he's walking home from work in a ditch. And they take him to this safe house that they have created with sound barriers and all kinds of other things. Well, now that you've captured him, now you've got to keep him safe. And what they needed to do was get him back to Israel so they could put him on trial for the war crimes that he had committed 15 years before. This guy was the one who essentially was personally responsible for killing 5 million people. Eichmann basically was Hitler's like next guy down. So Hitler says, kill these people. Eichmann's the one who says, this is how you're going to do it. And so he's responsible for all this. Well, then he fled the country and he's He's gone. Well, they've found him. They've captured him. They've put him in a house. He's under lock and key. Now what are you going to do? You've got to get him back to Israel. How are you going to do that? You've got to guard this good deposit. You've got to keep this guy safe no matter what. And they finally got him back. They drugged him. I don't want to tell you the whole story, but they got him on a plane, uh, dressed up like a flight attendant, and got him back to Israel. They put him on trial, and he experienced the justice that he rightly deserved. But what I'm saying is that's the kind of care you have to take of the gospel. Protect it with your life. Don't let anything stand in the way of passing this message on. So we protect this message with our lives and we pass it on. How do we as a church do this? How do we guard the good deposit? Let me give you four ways. One would be be clear on what is and is not the gospel. And maybe one way you can do that is by reading a book called What is the Gospel? That's sitting out on the table. Five dollars. Anybody? Five dollars. Um, if you don't want to read the book, you can just listen to a podcast about it. And I sent it on Wednesday to a guy who was working in our house, so I have it easily ready to send to you if you just want to listen to a podcast about what is the gospel. So be clear on what the gospel is and is not. Invite friends. Secondly, invite friends and invite neighbors and invite coworkers to come attend with you so they can learn the gospel and they can help pass it on then after they have repented and believed the gospel. Most people come to church. I think this is statistically proven again and again. Most people come to church because someone invites them to come with them. And I'm thankful for all of you who are in that category. I'm also thankful for all of you who are in the category of you came on your own and you were willing to be brave and walk into a place where you don't know anybody. And I praise God for that as well. But what I'm saying is invite others to come and get to know the gospel with you so they can be clear on the gospel, so they can pass the gospel on. Third, and I already talked about this a little bit, is invest in children's ministry. You get the privilege and the joy of telling my children and the Sanderson's children and all the other children who are coming to our church in the future that Jesus is the only king, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he will reign forever. You get to tell our children, behold your God. And you get to do that by being a member of our church and serving in children's ministry. And fourth, give generously toward those training for ministry, which basically means give in the offering because some of that money goes to the Southern Baptist seminaries. You can also direct money to other seminaries if you'd like or other Bible colleges if you'd like. You can give toward people like Michael Ducanel who are training for ministry and, and going around the world to learn the gospel more clearly in a different environment and share it in that environment and then to come back here, Lord willing, and do the same. So to stand firm in the gospel, know where your faith came from, know what the message is, and third, know who is on your side. Verses 15 through 18. 
And first of all, you need to be aware of those who turn away. Be aware that you have enemies. Be aware of people who hate you because you love Jesus. You love the message of the gospel. This was the case with these people named Phagellus and Hermogenes. And this is everything we know about them right here. We know their names. And we know that Paul says, these people turned away from me. That's a sad story. I'd be really curious to know more of what happened with them. Was it the moment that Paul was imprisoned again where they said, this is garbage? If we keep going this way, we're going to be in jail too. We're out of here. Was that the moment? Was it that people were being killed for their faith, as Paul himself was shortly after writing this letter? Who knows exactly the reasons, but Phygelus and Hermogenes turned away from the truth. You need to be aware of those who turn away. And secondly, you need to give thanks for those who remain, which means we need to be clear on who is in and who is out. Who's an insider, the New Testament would use that language, and who's an outsider. You need to be clear on those who are on your side, those who are your gospel friends. I got a text this morning from Nathan Carter, a pastor down in the city, just saying we're praying for Brainerd's ministry today, and I texted back, I am thankful for your gospel friendship, because he is a brother that if I'm having a bad day, I'm going to call him. If I'm having a bad day, I'm going to call Paul Alexander. If I'm having a bad day, I'm going to call Will Pereja. Those are gospel friends who are pastoring and preaching in their churches right now as we speak in this area. So we want to give thanks for those who are on your side. And even more specifically than just those friends who are part of what we call the Chicagoland Gospel Network, which are, are the, Clayton and I joyfully attend those meetings as often as we're able. We're thankful for like-minded friends, but you should be grateful for like-minded Christians here in your midst, sitting next to you or down the row or in front or behind you. Give thanks for those who are walking with Christ setting an example of what it looks like to follow Him in a variety of life circumstances and a variety of relationships. People who walk with Christ even though their families are a mess. People who walk with Christ even though their families seem like they're perfect from the outside. And the way you get to know those people who remain and you give thanks for them as you spend time with them. I would encourage you to get in here 10, 15, 20 minutes early so you can sit down and talk to people. And before the service, you're milling around talking with each other, which it always encourages me when I see that. I hope that afterwards you'll just connect with someone and say, hey, I'm going to fill in the blank. Popeye's, would you like to go get a chicken sandwich with me? And you can just ride together in the car and have a 10-minute conversation and eat Popeye's together and then come back and do it again the next week somewhere else. And you can have people in your home. You can do that any day of the week. This weekend's a great weekend to have church members over to your home. Have a barbecue. Buy $5 hot dogs and grill them and enjoy getting to know fellow church members together because we need to know who is on our side. We need to know and give thanks for those who remain, those who have not, like Onesiphorus, those who have not turned away. And it, Paul rightly prays, may God give him grace. May God give him mercy on that day because he searched for me. So in other words, it sounds like Paul was arrested and no Christian knew where he was. And Onesiphorus was like, I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to go encourage him. And so he started searching all the Roman jails said, is there a guy named Paul here? Maybe eventually he found him. Maybe Paul had a rat sitting on his lap at that very moment in a dark and dank and nasty sewage-filled prison and Onesiphorus refreshed him. Maybe that meant he brought him some fruit snacks and some Gatorade and some clean water and he said, I'm your friend. I'm here for you. And maybe he gave him a clean shirt to wear. Onesiphorus refreshed him and rendered service to him, was not ashamed of the gospel because he was not ashamed of Paul. We need to know who is on our side 
as we walk with Christ, as we seek to not be ashamed of the gospel. In Princeton, New Jersey, there's a seminary that has been there for hundreds of years now. And when it started, for about the first hundred years of its ministry, it was a faithful gospel preaching place. It's no longer that way, though occasionally faithful pastors come out of there uh, well equipped for ministry because the academics are high. uh, And if you go in there knowing the truth, you just want to be bolstered in the ability to defend the gospel, things like that, you can come out of there in good shape. But Back in the 1800s, it was a great place to go to ministry, a great place to hear the truth and learn the truth. And after several decades of ministry, one of the original faculty members named Archibald Alexander was addressing uh, a group of current students and a group of the alumni from the seminary. And they had gathered together, and he's essentially saying, some of you guys went to school with people who are now dead. They've done everything they could to serve the gospel, and now they're in the ground, and one day you're going to be there too. But he's addressing this group, Archibald Alexander, in May of 1834. He's addressing this group of students saying, you need to go on for the gospel. You need to take this message all over this relatively new country at that time, in the 1830s, and cause the gospel to go deeper, cause it to go wider. And so he said to this group, this was part of one of his sermons that day, he said, Permit me then, in the view of the shortness and uncertainty of life, to exhort you most earnestly to exert your faculties and improve all your opportunities to promote the kingdom of your Lord and Savior. Be fervent in spirit, constant in affection, wise in your plans, and indefatigable in your labors. Some of you may have what the world would call a hard lot. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you would say, my life stinks right now. Some of you have what the world would call a hard lot. You may be subject to many privations. You may not have a lot, that's what he means. This is 1830s language. You may be subject to many toils and obscure stations, which means places where no one knows who you are. Where, separated from polished and enlightened society and even from much intercourse with your brothers, which means you have no one to talk to and encourage you. Some of you have these hard lots and your hearts may become discouraged and you may feel as if you were forgotten by all. But remember that however you may live unnoticed by men, there is one whose watchful eye never loses sight of you and whose sympathizing heart bears a part of all of your sorrows. There is one who has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you and that he will be with you even to the end of the world. This friend who sticks closer than a brother has power as well as compassion and has pledged his word that all things shall work together for good to them who love him. And in due season, he will reward you openly for all the sufferings and labors endured for his sake. That sounds like Paul telling Timothy, go on in the gospel. Take the gospel broader. Take the gospel deeper. Make the glories of Christ known because despite all of those sufferings, despite the fact you don't have many friends, despite the fact people are turning away from you perhaps in droves like those soldiers in the Civil War and in the Revolutionary War and probably every war since, they may turn away. But you have someone who sticks closer than a brother and he will reward you openly for all the labors for his sake. So stand firm in that gospel, Christian. 
Our Father, we need your grace to do this. We need to be strengthened by your might to endure the hard things of the Christian life, to endure people who turn away, people who leave and say, I don't want any more of this, people who fall into sin and say, I love my sin more than you and I love my sin more than I love Jesus. So Lord, in this church, at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church, I pray that we would be strong in knowing the gospel well, that we would be crystal clear in what it is and how it affects our lives individually and as a church body. We pray that you would give us grace to fan into flame your work in our hearts, that we would follow the pattern of sound words, and that we would, by the Spirit dwelling in us, guard the truth you have entrusted to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.